I was raised to be Catholic and Protestant. It was a war of wills by my divorced parents on whose religion would win out. But I defied them both and said no to Catholic confirmation when it came up. And before I graduated high school, I thought, what if I'd been born Jewish? After about a decade, I found myself in Israel at the Kotel, thinking about my last remaining grandparent, who was very sick. The Catholic prayers I was raised with were not doing it for me. I looked around, and I saw the rolling shelf of cedarim. I pulled one out that was transliterated and landed on the prayer for healing. I started reading it, and it felt like coming home. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom. Shalom. Did you know how I tried to go between the V and the W? is like not Leibovitz, but not Leibovitz. Which one is it anyway? Leibovitz. It's well, a Vav, in, right? In, in the fatherland, it's Leibovitz, Leibovitz. which is none of the above. And a Tablet Deputy Editor, Stephanie Butnick. It's Butnick, guys. It's Butnick. Don't say Butnick, because you don't want to offend me. It is Butnick. <laughs> Butnik. First day of school class, the teacher is, I'm looking at you. Ah. It's Butnik, like Butnick. the thing. That's funny. I never would have thought you went through that as a child. It really is character building. I, it, it, it is. Um, it's time for our second annual, it's now annual, conversion episode here at uh, the home of Judaism Worldwide. We are we are welcoming the Jews by choice, the converts. Uh, we did it last year, and I, I feel like it was our best episode ever. Would you guys join me in that? It was really nice to hear all these stories from our listeners. Um, and we have some again this year, which is really cool. But just the idea that this is something that a lot of people think about and it's a part of a lot of people's lives. So yes, like nose jobs are funny. Jewish American princess, that stuff is funny and we do special shows for that. But this to me really feels like it gets to the core of such an important part of a lot of people's lives. And it's so, you know, not only upsetting, but sort of baffling to me that there are still so many corners of of American Jewish life in which Jews by choice feel anything less than a hundred percent welcome. Yeah, and if if this episode could do anything, really, it's just to say, hey guys, we're all we're all in this together. There's it's no, a little no tricky. Difference. It's a little tricky because it is Jewish tradition that you don't call out the converts. You don't make a thing of it that that Jews by choice are full Jews. However, we kind of want to make a thing of it because we want we want to say on this one day, we want to say like, hello, you converts. We're, we see you. We know you. And we're really grateful for you. I mean, here we Jews are in all kinds of we are in demographic danger and other kinds of more real danger. <laughs> and like the idea that anyone would seek to jump on this. Join this club. Like, join <laughs> this club. It's like, that you would go Hey, through... do you guys have bacon? Nope. <laughs> you shrimp? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Are your holidays, like, with jolly fat men in suits? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and if you want to join, we'll send you away multiple times and then make you take a year of classes, and then you've got to get dunked. It's and... like a baptism. It's Has a... <laughs> anything bad happened to you in the course of human events? <laughs> well. But I do think... Whenever I find out that someone has converted or know that someone converted, I always just think like, thank you. This is amazing. You chose this. And that's so spiritually profound, right? Like we were all just born into this. We, you know, it's like when you marry someone who is also Jewish, you're like, well, I guess we're going to use a rabbi. Like you don't actually have to think about all that stuff. It makes me so happy. Like I can't even rationally explain how happy it makes me, but it's sort of like, wow, look at that. But I we're, think we're one person bigger. But today. then I, the thing that the, the, the other side of that is like, okay, so you converted, you know all this stuff about Judaism You're now. You're taking way more classes than <laughs> you know, most of us have. You know more right. than we do since right. Hebrew school. Not, you know, maybe not we in this room, but like, 
And then you see everyone being like, oh, Chinese food, oh, bagels. And you're like, no, 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 there's so much more to your faith than this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. To our yeah. shared faith. I would you be, know, I think I'd be frustrated by that a little bit. Also, before I became a journalist, when I was just a mere journalist, I think that I figured the vast majority of converts were people who did a kind of desultory, half-assed conversion for the sake of marriage. marriage. Yeah. And I have no idea what the numbers are on that, but that doesn't feel at all to me like where conversion is. Like when I meet converts today, it is seldom something they did under duress because a partner or in-laws said, you must do this. And it's so often something that was this carefully considered, you know, thoughtful process, spiritually meaningful, spiritually profound um, and, and, and they often, what we've discovered in this podcast is they come with some of the best stories. Right. And look, every neshama, every soul ends up exactly where it needs to be. And those souls that are destined to be Jewish just find their way into the fold. But I do want to circle back to this idea of like, I think a lot of us think about like women in particular who marry non-Jewish women who marry Jewish men and convert. And Wait, can I just pause right there? You mm-hmm. don't think equally of non-Jewish men who marry Jewish women? It's, it's not as culturally prevalent, this idea of like, in the movies, you date a non-Jewish, this idea of like the shiksa, we're so like, you know, the Jewish mother doesn't like, like the daughter-in-law. I mean, I feel like the thing that I think that's a really missed opportunity is like, okay, so you convert to marry a Jewish man. You are then doing, in most situations, like the lion's share of the child rearing, and then you actually are the one in... And the giving the Judaism holiday to them. crap of yeah. this home-based religion. And so you're like, I, I feel like we you get a bad rap if like people who convert to marry in, and then they're the you know particularly women are the ones who basically carry on this legacy, which is kind of amazing. Now, if only the Bible had a book about a non-Jewish woman who became a Jew by choice and did some fine, fine child rearing like you know King David, and stuck with it even though there was no husband around right. to say, and even though her mother-in-law said, "You don't have to do this." What what book would that be, Leo? That would be the book of Ruth, which which we read in synagogue on, on this on this year holiday of of Shavuot, of Shavuot. or Shavuos if you want to be all Ashkenazi. It's Shavuos in East St. Louis, as Tom Lehrer once sang. Um, this year for your Shavuos conversion episode, we bring you some terrific stories. Producer Noah Levinson brings us a beautiful story of friendship and conversion in Alabama. A young woman who wanted to convert from Protestantism to Judaism. Her family wasn't so supportive, but she had a bestie who helped her down the road to mikvah. Liel sat down with Dr. Stu Halpern to discuss the book of Ruth, of which Dr. Halpern is a major scholar. We get into uh, why Ruth is is kind of the, the the grandmother of all converts. She wasn't the first convert in Torah, but in, she is kind of the archetypal uh, convert. We also wanted to spend some time with someone who was born Jewish, but in becoming substantially more observant, uh, a Baal Shuva, as they say, has kind of undergone a conversion. So I talked with a guy named Eric Ackland, who is a bookstore owner in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh. He was raised kind of secular Jewish and now is a, a quite observant Orthodox Jew. And that's been a kind of conversion of of a different sort. We, we wanted to, to pay some attention to that kind of process. We also hear from you guys, our listeners. Um, You left us amazing voicemails again this year, and they will be sprinkled throughout the episode. And we get a special audio diary from super listener Rebecca Sinman Murphy, who just completed her conversion and a few weeks ago went to the mikvah. And any Jew can go to the mikvah. The converts are are kind of the most famous mikvah isti, but, you know, we can all be immersing all the time. Do you immerse? I've immersed once, and it was for a column for the Times. Amer- you strike me like the the immersive sort. Are you, I bet you're an immerser. Oh, I'm an immerser. How, when did you last immerse in the uh, mikvah? Every Rosh Chodesh. So every Rosh what? Chodesh, you go oh, mikvah. Absolutely. Could you get some tape okay. next time? Uh, no, you can't because you're not allowed. Number one, number two, you're naked. Where would I? 
<laughs> where would the equipment go? You'd need a. I I'd be like. <laughs> and of course, this episode is sponsored monthly, by Harry's. Right? Uh, no, but like the mikvah on the Upper West Side. Oh, it's is so fancy. Un, it's like the fanciest gym you've ever been to. <laughs> it's like, it's a like here's your mouthwash and your cotton swabs. a sign from God that I heard that little blurb about sending in stories about the conversion episode part two uh, at the end of the Passover episode because it's been almost a year since I started listening to Unorthodox because I clicked on first the first conversion episode that you guys did because basically I've always felt Jewish. I've always felt really connected to it. For some reason when I was little, I was always telling people we were Jewish and like talking to my parents about it and they were like, this kid's weird. But there was some truth to it because my mom's side of the family was from Hungary, so the story goes, and my great-grandmother, Oster Rossman, um, was rumored to have been Jewish and to have sort of pushed that down in a way and out of her life. And then when I went to college, I got really involved in Hillel and was talking to people there about my story and and so this conversion episode has a big place in my heart actually and has been a big part of my Jewish learning honestly but I still have that lingering question of like do I convert am I a convert you know what is my claim to Judaism um okay that's it <laughs> thanks so much and I love the show bye Last year, after our conversion episode ran, we got a slew of emails from you, the J. Crew. each one more interesting than the last, but one of them stuck out to me. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I would think about it as I fell asleep in bed, and I would think, we have to reach out to her because we need her story if we ever do another conversion episode. It was last July that I got this email from Ashley Wallace. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but here's just a taste of why it stuck in my mind. She wrote, I struggled for years to find myself and to find my place in a very Christian society. Since I was 10 years old, I felt like there'd been some cosmic mistake and I was supposed to be Jewish. Well, enough said, Ashley. It turns out that she had this very, very close friend, Will, who helped her along the path to conversion, to coming into the religion where she felt her neshama, her soul, had always belonged. We went and talked with Ashley and Will. Here's our editor, Noah Levinson, with that story. Ashley Wallace's spiritual journey was probably destined to be at least somewhat difficult before she was even born. A lot of kids from interfaith marriages have to deal with the problem of deciding which, if either, of their parents' religions they want to follow when they come of age. And in Birmingham, Alabama, it's fair to call it an interfaith marriage whenever two different types of Protestant Christians get hitched. My mother was a Southern Baptist and my father was a Methodist, so when they got married it was kind of... I wouldn't say a scandal, but it definitely was something that everybody talked about. As soon as they got married, people were asking my mother, well, how are you going to raise your children? Are they going to be Baptist or are they going to be Methodist? So when I was born, they started taking me to both. So on Wednesdays, I would go to the Southern Baptist. On Sundays, I would go to Methodist. For most Easter's, though, I went to the Baptist church, but I went for Easter lunch with my Methodist family. Ashley was, by the sound of it, 
a good little Christian. Sunday school was no chore for her. She loved to read Bible stories and always took their meanings to heart. People even told her she had a gift. My church leaders, my youth leaders, my Sunday school teachers always would talk to my parents about how I really knew the lessons and that I could get people to follow, I could get people to believe things, that people would come to me with questions and I had answers or I at least was able to meet them on a a humanistic level and console them. If you go back in time, though, you might be able to listen for the hints that Ashley was really a Jew lying in wait. Okay, maybe one big hint. But they would also say things like, she's really into her Old Testament. Did you catch it? Well, Ashley's parents didn't. No one did. Though, as she got older, another, perhaps more subtle hint started to come up as well. Ashley loved to ponder on her own interpretations of the biblical text. Like, do you really think Lod's wife turned into Saul because she looked back? Or do you think it's because it's like, I don't know, a symptom of she was a woman who dared to do what she wanted to do? Or, you know, these like very strange religious theological questions like, how did Sarah laugh? Did she laugh out loud when God said she would have a son? Or did she laugh inside? What, you know, is she laughing because her husband was old and she didn't think that he could give her a child? What does the original Hebrew say? Something like that. And they would tell me to stop. They would say, you don't question this. You just teach it. And I would say things like, well, didn't you, when you were learning about it, didn't you have questions? They would say, no, because this is it. This is the law. This is true. You don't question these things. It happened the way it says it happened. It is the way it is because that is how it is. Ashley's first time learning about Jews besides the ones in the Old Testament, was a very strange encounter indeed. It was in the fifth grade, and the lesson plan for that day was supposed to be the beginning of their curriculum on the Holocaust. So I had a teacher that she, I think she was a substitute that day. She wasn't supposed to be teaching it, but they said, this is the only day that you can do it. So she took us to um, a computer lab And we went on the United States Holocaust Memorial website, and we learned about the Holocaust. Well, the kids start peppering the substitute with a bunch of questions, mostly like, why? Why would somebody do this? So kind of flustered, the sub says, turn off your computers. I want everybody to stand up. And we all turn around, we look at her, and she says, okay, you, you, you. And she just starts pulling kids at random. And she says, you need to come to the middle of the room. She physically put us in a circle where we were facing all of our fellow students and our backs were turned to each other. And she went around to each child and she said, your hair is is black, so you would have been sent to the gas chamber. And, you know, your teeth are uh, crooked, so you would have been sent to the gas chamber. And then so on and so forth. And I was a little bit shocked. And then she got to me and she said, you wear glasses and you have curly hair. You would have been sent to the gas chamber. And I remember thinking to myself, wait, what? Someone would hate me because I look different or I have curly hair and glasses. And it just, something about it, I just could not get past it. 
So I started to think to myself, well, what makes a man hate another man? Which is a very big question that would follow me for the rest of my life. But it also made me think, what is it about these people and their belief that could make someone have these opinions of them? Or, And so I started going to the library and checking out as many books as I could. Um, I was a very advanced reader, and they were just happy that I was reading. At first, Ashley's research was like a morbid obsession. She consumed Holocaust narratives one after the next, something she now wishes she'd had an adult to help her through. But her private fixation led her down a path of discovering that in Judaism lay the spirit of religious curiosity that in her Methodist Baptist upbringing she had always been discouraged from indulging. And this was a powerful revelation. When I would study more, I found out that responsa existed. And the Talmud, just a wonderful collection of people just arguing with each other, sometimes hundreds of years apart. And for me, that was very liberating because to me that said that, hey, two people had completely different interpretations of what this says. And it's and they wrote it down and they kept them and they welcomed it. Fast forward to college, Auburn University. Ashley has not breathed a word of her Jewish curiosity to her family, but at this point she's been reading Jewish texts for years in secret. When she arrives at Auburn, her family pressures her to join the Baptist Student Union, or maybe the campus's Methodist Society, but she makes up a bunch of excuses as to why she doesn't feel like joining. The truth is, she's eyeballing Hillel. They have this like week at Auburn when you first start each semester where you go up and you can sign up for clubs. And I went up to the table and I told them that I wanted to join Hillel and everything seemed fine. And I was signing and then the girl, she's so nice, but she goes, are you Jewish? And I remember saying, no. And then you could see on her face that it was like, oh, why are you here? The story of Ashley's conversion from this point forward involves a lot of, for lack of a better term, getting a whole bunch of bullshit from all sides. From the Jewish students on campus, her interest in their religion was met with a lot of skepticism and condescension, which she says, in retrospect, she totally understands. But to me, it just sounds like needless gatekeeping. They would say things like, well, I think maybe you're just into Jewish things. Like it was a hobby for her. Then you would have those that were like, you can't become a Jew. And they would be like, you know, we like you, you're nice, but you can't be a Jew. You don't have any Jewish relatives. You can't live a Jewish life in the South. Um, if you go through conversion, it has to be, you know, this very specific Orthodox um, conversion or, you know, I even had one person tell me that I would have to go to Israel to do it, but that no one does conversions. This is not for you. Meanwhile, with her Christian friends, at least those with whom she was close enough to admit that she was thinking about conversion, the conversation usually ended up in the same place, fire and brimstone. They would always have similar cautions. <laughs> I guess they would always kind of sit me down and be like, well, you know, you can learn about Jews and be a friend to them, but you're not Jewish. And I would just sit there and think to myself, well, OK, yeah, I know this. But then it would sometimes change to, you know, 
prophecy. You know, they'd want, depending on who you talk to, the Bible would come up and it would be, you know, one day all the Jews will believe in Jesus and you can do this up until a point and then you need to stop because if you don't stop, you've gone too far and you can't come back. I even had a roommate that told me that I should not do it because what if we're wrong? Meaning like, what if if you do this and Jesus is actually the Messiah and then you go to hell. So my friend Will was the only person while I was in college that was actively telling me, well, just keep looking into it. Just keep going with it. He would always ask me, well, what's holding you back? And I don't know, he knew how to ask it the right way. Like if we could just figure out what this is, then... Surely you will know what to do. And for me, it always came down to if you give up Jesus, then you, if you're wrong, you go to hell. And there's no coming back. And that fear really lingered with me. And I would talk to him about it extensively. So I really found a support that I had never had in this one individual, and it really changed the course of my life. After college, Will moved to Boston and Ashley back home to Birmingham with her parents, where she was as depressed as ever about her religion. In Birmingham, she says, Christian culture is just so dominant, it almost doesn't matter where you are. A wedding, a funeral, even a birthday party, It's like everywhere is church. She felt like a stranger in her own hometown. And then one day, Will calls me and he's like, hey, I met this girl, she's from Birmingham, and she's Jewish. And she has the name and the number of a rabbi. It's her rabbi. And she wants you to call and talk to him and see if he can help you out. And that's what gave me the push. I think it was the very next day that I called the rabbi. And I think I started the conversation off with, hey, my name is Ashley, and I want to convert. (laughs) And that's what got us started on this. It was pretty much all thanks to Will giving me that, that push that I needed and that information that I needed and that security and that, um, that support. And from the moment that I met the rabbi, I knew that this was supposed to be my rabbi. I knew that this was supposed to be happening, that all of this was falling into place, and that even if he turned me away 700 times, I wasn't going anywhere. That I had already taken the leap. I'd already tried my best to leave the fear behind and not let it control me anymore. Over the next 13 months, Ashley receives private counseling from the rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Miller, And things go really, really well. The rabbi gives her homework and readings. He assigns her a bunch of essays. And so finally, after years of seeking it out, Ashley finally has a proper channel to pursue Judaism. So the closer that I get to the month of Adar, which is supposed to be the happiest month, my rabbi informs me that I have completed what I needed to complete and that he would like to know if I am ready to go to the mikvah and do everything that I need to do to complete the conversion. 
And of course, resoundingly, I say, yes, I'm ready because I felt like I had been ready for years. There was this really weird moment where I started contemplating dying before I could convert, like not dying as a Jew. This is such a a weird thing to think of, but it bothered me. And I thought, okay, that's pretty substantial. If, If that bothers me, then I've clearly made the right choice and I need to go through with it. I know what I'm doing now. So I tell him this and he says, okay, well, you have to do something for me, for me to agree. And I said, what do I need to do? Do I need to write another essay? (laughs) And he goes, you have to tell your family because I know that you haven't told them. And I didn't want to tell them because I knew for me, my greatest simcha is their tragedy. It's a tragedy for them. I wish I could say that Ashley's fears about her family's reaction were overblown, but they really weren't. She pleaded with the rabbi to try and get out of it, but he insisted. So I sat down with my mother, and the things that were said to me were so upsetting that I will never forget them, ever. She informed me that she would not come because... To watch me go through this would be like to watch someone murder me. And that this was blasphemy. Um, I was told everything that I'm sure anyone who's ever left Christianity was told that, you know, only through me will you know the Father. I mean, these are like cliches that if you grow up in the South, you definitely know just because we use them in common vernacular a lot. And... These things were being said to me, and it was much different. It was more different than it had ever been said. You know, I've told you throughout this that people would caution me, sit me down, tell me that once you go past a point, you can't come back. And this was the point. And this was my mother telling me that I can't come back after this. So I asked her what she was going to do that day. And she said, well, we're getting our taxes done on that day. After all of this, there was one last obstacle in the way of Ashley's becoming a Jew. The rabbi had requested an $85 contribution to the mikveh before she took the plunge. Ashley didn't have it. And she was also pretty sure that she was about to get kicked out of her parents' house. Rabbi Miller probably would have waived the fee, Ashley acknowledges, if she had told him all this. But she was ashamed. Over the phone, she mentioned all this to Will, and without even thinking about it, he sent her a check made out to the synagogue. Of course, he knew Ashley's mom personally, so just to keep his own reputation safe, he mailed it without a return address. So the day arrives, and the day before, I received received this white letter, and I've, you know, described it many times as being like a letter I felt like you should not open. It looked like danger. It was just like a blank envelope, and I couldn't see anything um, inside of it when I held it up to the light, and I just thought, well, you know, it's going to be full of anthrax or something. And (laughs) so I open it, and out comes a check, and it's from Will, and it's for the mikvah. 
On the day of the ceremony, Ashley brings a small handful of friends along. Will, still in Boston, couldn't make it. Someone on the Beit Din asks her where her family is, and Ashley has to explain that they're doing their taxes. They're not coming, they don't support this, and in their minds, she's probably going to hell. My main rabbi, he looked like... He, he looked like he utterly could not believe what I was telling him, that somewhere in his mind, I think he thought that when I told them that, yes, it would be hard, it would be like the other conversions that I had seen where their family shows up and they don't know what's going on, <laughs> but they just kind of smile and they just kind of try to stand when you're supposed to stand and they open the books wrong and you know I think he just really thought that that it would somehow work out and then it was almost like 10 minutes of silence in religious court just no one really knew what to say to me and no one really knew what to do so they took me down to the Bema where I would, where they would pray and we would open the Ark and, we, you know, we would do everything we're supposed to do and make the public proclamation before I go to the mikvah and I cried the entire time because I felt like Ruth and I felt like I had left everything that I had ever known and that I was getting exactly what I wanted, but I was hurting other people to do it. And I was hurting myself. Fortunately, Ashley didn't get kicked out of her parents' house. But she's got a good job now and plans to move out as soon as possible. Ashley describes her extended family's attitude towards her as inclusive exclusion, best exemplified by the saying, love the sinner, not the sin. She says this is an attitude that allows otherwise empathetic people to keep you in their lives while still harshly reminding you that you displease them. As for her mother, they simply don't talk about it. She doesn't think that relationship will ever be fully repaired. In spite of all this, Ashley says that since the conversion, she's happier than she's ever been. And one thing I find interesting is just how much of the credit she gives to Will. Honestly, I find that a little surprising. I mean, it sounds like Ashley went through all kinds of emotional trauma to become a Jew. And all Will did, basically, was just give her a little nudge. Some good conversations here and there, a phone call, a check for 85 bucks. It's really not that much in the grand scheme of things. But maybe when all the social circumstances are stacked against you, like they were for Ashley, the Christian culture of the South, both sides of her family, her roommate, her friends, even the campus Jews, Having just one supportive voice can make a huge difference. For Will's part, he also doesn't think too much of his own role in all this. We talked about it over the phone, and he just kept saying, it's simple, Ashley's my friend, why wouldn't I help her? Just because she's my friend? And I think the, the only real interest that I took was the fact that she was and is my friend, and this was so important to her, and she was willing to, to really put herself out there and go through all of these hoops and go through all of these trials really personally. And so, you know, why why wouldn't I help her? Will also, in childhood, attained a kind of freedom that Ashley never really had. And I think that experience might be what made him such a good ally in this story. 
He also grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, but sometime around age 12, he just decided he would stop going to church. And actually, his family was all right with it. His mom stopped going too. He didn't struggle too much over the spiritual betrayal like I think Ashley would have. Church just didn't vibe with him. Plus, he wanted his weekends back. I also kind of got the feeling that people knew that I, the little old me, even though I was 12 or so, that I was, that I was gay, or at least probably at that point. Um, so I kind of had a feeling that people were sort of breathing down my neck. <laughs> and so that was, that was sort of unwelcome. Um, and I think that, you know, Ashley's story, like I said, or her, her desire to blaze her own trail r- resonated with me because I felt like I had kind of blazed my own trail too. Um, I didn't really fit the mold, I think, a lot with a lot of the people that were around me. Um, and so for Ashley saying, like, no, I, I, I feel drawn toward Judaism. It's like, awesome. Go down that path. Do it. Because, you know, lo- looking back at myself, if I had sort of allowed myself to stay constrained within the parameters that were set forth for me, um, then I think I would have been a very unhappy person and probably wouldn't have been able to achieve what I had. Finally, I ask Will, because I wonder if he notices, is there a big difference between Christian Ashley and Jewish Ashley? Uh, Well, Ashley's just always been Ashley. So... I don't know. I think um, I think the core of who Ashley is is the same. Um, I learn a lot more about Judaism now, um, just in conversation, um, which Ashley is always very informative. She's full of information on a lot of different things, which is one reason why I appreciate her friendship. Um, but I think that Ashley is just always, she is who she always has been. And I think that goes back to the fact that this is probably what was meant to be, because this is, I think, probably who she always was to begin with, truly. Um, it's not like she was, it's not like she was a caterpillar that turned into a monarch butterfly. I think she was always kind of a monarch butterfly to begin with. So I don't think she's really changed that much because I think this is who she always was, or at least who she was meant to be. Sometimes I feel like, am I crazy for doing this? But then I think, no, this is this is really the path it was always supposed to be. But I just want to say thank you a thousand times to Will, to be honest. I'll never be able to say thank you enough. That was our editor, Noah Levinson. Editors, give me a soundtrack. All right, J. Crew. by popular demand, we are at long last coming to Chicago. Hadassah Chicago North Shore is bringing us to do a live show at the Logan Square Auditorium. We will be there on June 26th, and our guests are killer. The Jew of the Week will be Blair Braverman, the woman who has finished the Iditarod dog sled race. Rumor has it she may be bringing a dog, a friendly dog, that is. And Greta Johnson, the host of the Nerdette podcast, will be our Gentile of the Week. That's a terrific podcast, and you want to binge listen in advance. Hey, even if you're not from Chicago, drive in. Come from Wisconsin. Come from Indiana. We welcome you from all over the central time zone. More information at bit.ly slash unorthodox Chicago. We will see you there.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. If you didn't know, you can't quit the Catholic Church. I sent in a letter of dissection when my conversion was complete, and I received this response in summary. Akiba, we can't remove you from the parish records. It's against church law to remove someone from the records as you can't undo a sacrament in our understanding. But we can absolutely print your declaration and make an annotation. Such a declaration does excommunicate yourself from the church. If you would like to ever be reconciled with the church, you can seek that in the sacrament of confession. Well, I was born in Warsaw, Poland and emigrated to the U.S. at the age of nine in 1993. Um, I've always felt the pull towards um, Judaism and a few years ago I took a DNA test and it turned out I have Ashkenazi ancestry. Then I started to explore Judaism. After chickening out of it for the first time, I kept meeting with the rabbi in charge of conversion studies at Central Synagogue, Rabbi Lisa Rubin, who's become instrumental in me finding my place and just a mentor all, all, all around. So after some stops and starts, I finally completed a class and felt just psychologically halt. I finally kind of just knew who I was. Um, eventually my mother came clean and told us that our great-great-grandmother told her daughter that she was a Jew her whole life, dying on her deathbed. Um, I, basically I was Jewish all along, so <laughs> I wasn't crazy and this wasn't some sort of a weird phase I was going through. So all my suspicions and my strange pull towards Judaism and the Jewish people finally made sense. So my, my soul was just dying to re reconnect. Since then, I've become more observant. While I started, you know, within the Reformed tradition, I now consider myself somewhere between conservative and modern Orthodox. I keep Shabbat as best as I can, keep kosher-ish, I want to say 90%, wear a kippah here and there, um, not as much as I used to, but it, it depends. I do daven three times a day. So basically, the day I converted, or more correctly, returned to Judaism, was the most liberating day of my life and uh, the most important day of my life. Maybe you're wondering why we're talking about conversions right now. Why Why this week? Why this time of year? The answer, of course, is because we're celebrating the holiday of Shavuot, which revolves around the story of Ruth, one of the most famous Jews by choice in history. So we figured out we should get to know her a little bit better. We sat down with Dr. Rabbi Stu Halpern, editor of the newly released and terrific book, Gleanings, Reflections on Ruth. Hey, Stu, thank you so much for joining us. Ruth is a Moabite woman, right? She's right. not an Israelite. Right. And it's important to remember that she's Moabite in that the Moabites are a people not allowed into the Jewish people because they did not bring forth bread and water to the Israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the land of Israel. And so they're a notoriously bad people. In fact, there are people whose very patriarch, Moab himself, Moab the individual, is a product of incest. Lot, in the book of Genesis, actually drunkenly sleeps with two of his daughters 
and the product of the union with one daughter is Moab. So Ruth descends from this incestuous people, and she is someone who actually marries a Jew, who had left the, the land of Israel during a time of famine. The book begins when there is famine in the land of Israel, and we think in this story we're following as we usually do in biblical stories, a man and his family. But in fact, the man dies in the opening verses, and his two sons die. Who's left is Naomi, his widow, and two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And so Naomi, once the famine passes, Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, who passes away, and the mother of the, the husband of Ruth, we find out that they're from Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Clearly a symbolic name. They head back to Bethlehem. And in fact, both daughters-in-law want to go to the land of Israel. Now, Naomi tries to discourage them, and there's really nothing for them in the land of Israel. Naomi herself is an elder widow, and Ruth and Orpah are foreigners. Eventually, she, Naomi, talks Orpah out of going, and Orpah does, in fact, return to Moab. But Ruth pledges her allegiance to Naomi, and she says, famously, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Why does she do this? So it's a fantastic question, actually strengthened by the tradition we have from the ancient rabbis that she was some sort of princess of Moab, that Ruth actually not only could have gone and found a regular husband, she could have married a prince or a future king. So we don't know that text is purposely ambiguous. We don't know what it was specifically about Naomi as a person, her values, her culture, her God, but seemingly it's a conglomeration of all of these factors that has inspired her to throw in her lot, no pun intended, with this bereaved widow who is poor and who seemingly has no prospects. There seems to be another interesting question raised by the book of Ruth. We are famously averse to proselytizing, and there seems to be almost kind of a, a model of ultimate or ideal conversion in the story, right? Like, we're not going to ask you to come. In fact, we're sort of going to say, like, why do you need this trouble? If you really feel it, if you really want, if you really believe it, come and get it the way Ruth did. Is that a good model? The rabbis of the Talmud actually use the story of Ruth to model our own laws of conversion. And the same way that Naomi tried to talk Ruth out of converting, we also try to talk converts out of converting. We're not looking to get more Jews. Uh, in fact, Jews, as we all know, were a minority people for the entirety of their history, living under the control of others. They were not in position to go looking for converts and not interested in going to look for converts. So I think that there's both a value of not seeking to convert the world. We're not believers in you have to be Jewish in order to be a contributing positive member of society and enter the world to come. We are people who, if you choose to join us, then here are the rules, here are the expectations. We can contribute through Jewish living to your life, and we're eager to hear what you can contribute to Jewish living through your life. But it's not something that we're proactively going to look for. Rabbi Dr. Halpern, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Converting to Judaism as a trans woman in Arkansas has been an amazing experience. At my temple, I found a community that accepts me for who I am without reservations. Meanwhile, although most Jews my age from the area have moved out of state, I've been able to find a few Jewish friends my own age here locally and even more in online groups. Thanks for all the work y'all do on the podcast. My daughters were with me and we all got converted at the mikvah, Mayim Hayim, in Greater Boston at the same time. It was funny because my preschooler wouldn't get out of the water and my first grader wouldn't go under. So we just had a really good time trying to navigate all of those things while I myself was naked with my two girls and the mikvah guide. 
I thought my family's story might be of interest for the unorthodox conversion episode. My rabbi was pretty sure it was the first time he had ever converted members of three generations in one family. I was a long-lapsed Methodist, married to a completely non-observant Jew, and we raised two daughters and a son in what the eldest calls an interfaithless family. After the birth of my grandson, my daughter decided that she wanted him to have some sort of religious education, and she became interested in her Jewish heritage. Her husband is not Jewish, by the way. She signed up for a brief course at a nearby synagogue called A Taste of Judaism, and the rest of us decided to tag along just out of curiosity. My daughters, my husband, and I then all proceeded by quite different paths to widen our knowledge of Judaism and become involved in the Jewish community. My son was away at college when we started this journey, and he's watched with interest but not followed us. It took 10 years and the impending date of our adult B'nai Mitzvot for my daughters and me to formalize our Jewish identities with a trip to the mikvah. My conversion was about five years in the making, ever since my first Shabbat at my friend Eric's house. Fast forward five years, I married a number of Jew. I got cancer 2017. Uh, my daughter was six months at the time. She had just had her hot spot, and I decided, you know, I'm needing to become Jewish. Finally, it's time. So I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and luckily had a chaplain, um, a rabbi, come hang out with me, basically, um, quite a bit. Wasn't sure if I should convert reform or conservative. I'd never realized it was a thing to have to pick, and went to a rabbi at the Reform Synagogue. Um, he's amazing, Rabbi Weiss. The day that the class was on a day where we didn't have a babysitter, um, and I'd always have to be kind of in and out of the hospital, so it was just tricky to um, manage. Um, my treatment was intensive chemotherapy and immunotherapy, but um, Rabbi Weiss was awesome. Saw me pretty much almost puking in his office several times. And there was a synagogue across the street that had an intro to Judaism class with babysitting on Sunday morning. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We love our listeners, and one of the amazing things that's happened over the past few years of doing this show is that we feel like we've really gotten to know you. So we heard from Rebecca Cinnamon Murphy, who was married to a Jew and raising her children Jewish, that she was finally going to take the plunge herself and convert. We knew we had to hear from her. We asked her if she would keep an audio diary to record the process as it went along. Here's a sample of what she recorded. November 29th, 2018. I have begun seriously considering converting to Judaism. I know that it is not a fancy because I have already crafted the opening line of the holiday letter that I send out once it's done. It does not seem odd that after a woman has given birth to three Jewish children, she should in turn discover that she is, in fact, a Jew who has been raised as a Presbyterian. I have been becoming myself, scraping the schmutz off that the world and my family put on me. First, my divorce, and then dating all around, and then 15 years of therapy, and then there was a huge break with the past upon giving birth and having new things to care about. It makes sense that with all this liberation, I might find that my identity is not what I thought it was, that I'm a Jew. My mom's gotten better. She asked, are you ready to talk to me yet? I started to give her my spiel and she interrupted saying, I get that it's about your children. That makes sense. I clarified that although that was true, it was only part of the story. I said, I've been fighting with Christians so that they would be better so that I can fit in. I just, I feel more comfortable as a Jew. I did reference the ugly duckling story saying that they thought they had been raising a Presbyterian all along. She expressed grief that she couldn't pass her Christmas dishes down to me. I had a thought that her Christmas dishes were just pine trees, so maybe we could use them for Tuba Shvat. <laughs> she didn't get the joke. Earlier in the day, we were discussing making chicken regularly for Shabbat, and she said, well, that's what they do, isn't it? I mean, that's what you do. That felt really good. I told my dad today, too. He responded as expected, supportive, caught off guard, deflective of his importance in the process, clearly reeling. So I just kept talking. (laughs) I told him that he might have some feelings. Grief was appropriate, bewilderment and confusion. I said that I would be willing to take him to talk with the rabbi or just make some space to process things together. He said he couldn't imagine that being necessary. I floated the ugly duckling theory. He said he couldn't wrap his brain around thinking that way. I apologized for not finding a sports metaphor. We joked about him heading home to have a nap, which is his lifelong coping mechanism for stress. Interesting, a lot of people on the Unorthodox page encouraged that if my soul felt Jewish, that was most important, or that my conversion was between me and God, not other people. I felt moved to call my sister-in-law to tell her yesterday. 
part of it is that I have no idea how to tell my in-laws, and I want her advice, and she understands them socially better than Jacob does. I'm not ready for it to be a big announcement, but it's also not something that Jacob can just pass along on one of his weekly phone calls. Lisa was very excited, as I knew she would be. She said I would be a badass Jew. It made me realize they can't really be a badass Christian. So I got that going for me. She also affirmed that if anyone was going to make the decision based on a real understanding of what it entailed, rather than just because they were getting married, it was me. I'm super honored by that. We leave in two days for Syracuse for Passover. I have done no cleaning. Never have. That is an area of observance that I told Jacob he could do if he felt meaningful. I fantasized a little that maybe the next time we are home for Pesach, we'll do the whole shebang just once with the feather and the candle and all of that. So the kids have a memory of the experience. My father drove us to the airport this morning to go to Syracuse for Pesach. It was a small but awkward and a little sad moment when I hugged him and wished him a happy Easter because we don't say that to each other. We use the spiritual greeting, he is risen, and then someone says, he is risen indeed. Easter is so much better when it's an affirmation of God's love for us, so powerful, death can't restrain it. Happy Easter just says bunnies are nice. If everything that I have invested into Christianity, Christendom, and my relationship with God and the world through the story of Jesus is a gift from my past self, my current self gets to choose whether or not to accept it, cherry pick from it, or put it on a shelf. Certainly, my concept of living a spiritual life and seeing God in other people will continue to serve me as a Jew. Over the weekend at my niece's birthday party, I told my local siblings about converting. My mom fussed a little beforehand, asking if it was necessary. She doesn't like even the potential for conflict. Everyone was pretty cool about it. My Punjabi sister-in-law had the best question. What will change about your daily life because of this? I talked about family unity and energy and the appeal of Jewish spiritual disciplines. I'm a quilter, and the concept of hidur mitzvah really resonates with me. That's the idea that if you're going to make a ritual object, it should be as beautiful as possible to honor God. So I want to make my own talus. I did a little online research and I figured out a design. First, for the atara, which is the collar that spells out the blessing, said while donning talit, I found a printable PDF and will print it onto fabric and let my kids color in the Hebrew letters with fabric markers. Then there's a traditional quilt design called a tree of life that is constructed with many triangles. I'll make that for the predominantly blue stripe on each side. On the one side, it'll be straightforward, and on the other, I'll adjust the design so that when the leaves are constructed of brown fabric, they look like the roots of the tree. I'm so conscious of honoring my Christian upbringing and my parents. This is not a break with them. This is a flowering of what they cultivated. My dad called today because his serious radio played far from the home I love, from Fiddler on the Roof. I'm thinking of you! At first I smiled but thought nothing of it because this is not uncommon for him. The first musical he ever saw was in 1968 on Broadway, and it was Fiddler on the Roof. He was profoundly affected. He was a huge jock, fresh from winning the NCAA baseball tournament as a college junior. He had no idea that something on a stage could even exist like that. 
There was a rotating set piece, and the emotions and music overwhelmed him. Consequently, I grew up with musicals as our family soundtrack, Chorus Line, Dreamgirls, and Fiddler. When I was 14, I won a lead in the school production as Huddle, the singing daughter. My dad was so proud that he bought a row of seats all three nights of the show and invited everyone he knew to see me singing Matchmaker and Far From the Home I Love. Eight years later, as a result of the Christian purity culture, I married the first man I slept with in a classic Chicagoland wedding with baked chicken and mastacholi. To prepare for the father-daughter dance, my dad brought several CDs to a dance studio so we could choose one and practice. He sobbed embarrassingly when the instructor played that solo from the original cast album, and she declared it a shoe-in. Over the years, he would occasionally run out the tape on my answering machine, playing the song and sniffling to share his sentimentality. (laughs) Although I wanted to reclaim the song as belonging to my father and me for my second wedding to a nice Jewish boy this time, the band leader suggested that he could do a lovely and non-schmaltzy version of Sunrise, Sunset. Last week, I told my pious, Jesus-following father that I was pursuing conversion and that his grandchildren would now be raised in an exclusively Jewish home. This week, he called to celebrate hearing our song on the radio, the one that goes, Who could see that a man would come and change the shape of my dreams? I think we're going to be okay. I'm trying to walk. No, no, no. no, you don't walk. Yeah. But we are going to hear. So we got to make sure that we're listening. Is that a mic thing? Do you want to try your mazel tov? We need those boys to come back and sing with us. Everyone more boisterous. Bigger voices. I'm a penguin. What do short ladies do? Stand on the bottom of the bench. Okay. Or children. <laughs> okay. All set. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I'm going to lower the towel. I know. That was the so You can feel the warmth of the water and get the surrounding you. I'm going to ask the commission of the day, Dean, for you to begin your immersions. Members of the team, may Rebecca begin Jacob? Yeah? Will you and the kids say the Shehekyanu with me? Sure. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shechianu V'Kiemanu V'Gianu Zman Hazed that was Rebecca Cinnamon Murphy, super listener and friend of Unorthodox. All right, 30 seconds of your time. First of all, we have a book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia, Everything You Need to Know from Abraham to Zabar is written by... 
Mark Oppenheimer, Liel Leibovitz, and Stephanie Butnick is coming to bookstores in October. You can pre-order now. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com if you'd like to be part of our book tour. Listen, whoever you are, whether you've been listening for a long time or whether this is your first time, make sure that you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your free podcasts. And if you want to go on Apple and rate us, that helps kick us up in the algorithms and introduce more people, more potential converts indeed, to Unorthodox. Even though I felt like a Jew for a long time, I had delayed my conversion for years, even after having a Jewish wedding, because I was so nervous about how my Irish Catholic family would react. I finally started the process five years ago, but soon after taking the first steps, meeting with the rabbi, telling my family, planning which month I was going to try keeping kosher, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and needed immediate chemotherapy. My memories of those first few weeks in the hospital are very hazy, but I do have one that sticks out. I was waking up from a nap with my mom by my side when the hospital chaplain, one of those sweet old nuns, came in to give my mom communion. She then turned to me and proceeded to light a fake fire Shabbat candle and hand me a mini hollow loaf. I must have looked confused because then the nun said, your mom told me you need to start Shabbat. As my mom and I said different prayers and munched Eucharist and challah side by side, I knew I had underestimated her. Thank you for loving and appreciating us newly minted Jews. When I converted at the age of 12, I also had to be circumcised. Now, for 11 years, I'd lived the turtleneck lifestyle, never thinking anything different, never really considering anything different. However, at around 10 years old, my mom and I started to attend shul, and not too long after that, we started going to conversion classes. I'd expected at some point for the instructor to pull me aside and tell me about a little procedure that I would have to have done if I indeed wanted to go to the mikvah. According to my mom, I said something along the lines of, well, sometimes you have to make sacrifices for what you want. But if I'm being completely honest, I don't remember saying anything like that. Now, I was given the option of having a regular brit milah with moil, bagels, lox, you know, the whole deal, but I would have to do that with no anesthetic. Or I could have it done on my own by a doctor and then have what's called a hatafat dambrit. I went for the second option. After the doctor did their job, I was told that within about two weeks, the stitches would dissolve and I would need no follow-up appointment. Two weeks came and then two weeks went and then three weeks came and went and there was still no dissolving to be seen. So I took matters into my own hands. Armed with scissors and tweezers, I removed my own stitches. And I must say for a 12 year old, I didn't do that bad of a job. The Hatavat Dambrit came next, and while it was just a little pinprick, it was still terrifying, but rather uneventful. Hatavat Dambrit done, I was off to the mikvah. Today, my penis and I are both well, living in Tel Aviv, and we're enjoying the Jewish life here. To me, one of the really impressive things about converts is their courage. Whatever you think of their decision to change religions, there is no doubt that making such a big change comes with all sorts of risks. You can be rejected by your family. You might feel uncomfortable around your old friends. They might feel uncomfortable around you. If you become a religious Jew, all of a sudden you can't drive to that party on the other side of town on Friday night. 
If you become a religious Christian or Muslim, maybe you stop sleeping with your significant other if you're not married. I mean, these are big changes. But look, these aren't just changes that people have to undergo when they move from one religion to another. It's also what you undergo when you become more serious about a religion that you're already in. This applies to secular Jews who become more religious. These are what are called Baalei Teshuva. A Baal Teshuva is a returner or a repentant, somebody who was already Jewish but decides to become Orthodox. It's a conversion of a different kind, and we thought it deserved a place in this episode, especially because in my travels this year to Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, I needed a place to waste time in between interviews, and I kept gravitating to this one particular store, not just because of what it sold, but because of who did the selling. Have a listen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Are, are we on already? We're on, we're on. <laughs> right. yeah. So my name is Eric Ackland, and I own Amazing Books and Records. We're a Pittsburgh-based used book and record store. So I grew up in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, in a in a very blue-collar neighborhood. Both my parents had graduate degrees, but it was a, it was a mostly Catholic neighborhood. There were German Catholics, Polish Catholics, Irish Catholics, and there was me and a black kid. <laughs> so we were the odd odd boys out, as it were. And uh, my parents uh, both grew up in New York, and my mother was, I guess, agnostic. Most um, she was raised as a conservative Jew, and my father grew up without religion. Grew up with secular Christmas and you know, ham sandwiches and and what have you. Um, not quite sure if either of them was determined to meet a, and date and marry a Jew, but. Somehow that worked out, and uh, they moved to Philadelphia just before I was born, the year I was born. We always did a Passover Seder, and my mother always went to synagogue for high holidays. And I think when I was in was kindergarten or first grade, apparently I came home from school today and one day and said, I don't like Jews. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, religious school was on the table. I can't quite remember why he didn't like the other Jews. He thinks it might have had something to do with them having more money than he had and being snooty about it. He's not really sure. But whatever the cause, his parents freaked out. His secular parents now had a self-loathing five-year-old Jew on their hands, and they had to do something about it. You know, and so they they popped me into the local uh, reform synagogue where we were already going for high holiday services. But, you know, no one no one was a theist in my, my family. And we, I think... I think there was a tacit uh, assumption that that theism was a less than intelligent position and that no one intelligent believed. Um, and, you know, by, like, I think many suburban middle-class kids, by the time I was 12, I was not interested in going further. And I, I was, I, I suppose I could have been stronger and resisting, but I was essentially coerced into having a bar mitzvah. And uh, I thought it was, I, I thought if I had real integrity, I would have set my foot down, you know, because it, it just didn't, it just didn't make a lot of sense. We didn't believe it. So reading from Torah did nothing for Eric's spiritual journey, or so he says. But his thirst for truth was just getting started. And in the years to come, reading would be at the very center of his quest. So yeah, so I, I was bar mitzvah and then I was done. You know, I, I guess from high school on, I was reading and thinking a lot about ethics and, and meaning and purpose. And I was a, I was a determinist. So I, I, 
you know, I believed we only have the illusion of free will, the illusion of choice, the and the illusion of meaning. I didn't believe I, that meant I should throw those things out. I just believed they were like inescapable illusions. That was a part of the uh, conundrum of being human. Um, but I, I continued to read and I read popular books on Judaism and Christianity and uh, a little bit of Buddhism. And yeah, I, I read tons of tons of fiction. You know, so I, was, I, I used to cut high school to stay home and read. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I loved Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Victor Hugo and you know later uh, George Eliot, uh, Henry Miller. You know, one of these guys. I <laughs> you never want to tell someone that you read or like because he's he's not exactly kosher. Right. He's in fact he was a anti-Semite as was Dostoevsky as as are some of the best you know <laughs> writers. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great writers that don't like Jews. Uh, G.K. Chesterton. Right. Uh, and I, he's he's fantastic. Along the course to becoming a theist, I read Orthodoxy by him and Heretics, as well as C.S. Lewis and and other people. But yeah, so over, you know, from the time I was, I guess, early teens through into my to the present day, I read broadly. What were you? Uh, a lot of people are converted by Chesterton and Lewis. Were you were you tempted? No, no. I, I, they, their arguments are persuasive, but the the internal logic of Christianity never made a lot of sense to me. And I and I I'm surprised it made sense to these guys who are pretty bright. <laughs> I mean I mean I mean no disrespect. There there you know there are a lot of truly bright Christians. You know Thomas Aquinas. You know hey, um, but but yeah the the logic never held up. When I finally was really, you know, searching and later later in life, I was like, I don't want to be biased. I don't know if I was more biased against Judaism or against Christianity, but you know, I wanted to. I wanted to. If I if one was right, I wanted to do that one. Hey, can I take this for That's okay. Not a problem. Our will continue. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. That's the really important. Sure. Yeah. As am I. When I we're know. Done. Yeah. I believe I have another one of his books in the window. Oh, okay. They said it was. Something you've probably noticed pretty quickly about Eric is that he seems to possess this extreme commitment to intellectual rigor. If one was right, I wanted to do that one. That's his outlook. He would brook no favoritism, no bias, no religious apologetics. He only wanted to follow a path if it was right. Looking around his bookstore, you are reminded that this outlook, this commitment to literacy and arguments in books, more than any shul or religious community, this is Eric's synagogue. In the years before and after his observance, the one constant in his life was his voracious reading. And in his late 20s, it was that reading that started to take a decidedly Jewish bent. So I encountered uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman's uh, book on dating, Rabbi Shmuley Boter's books on dating. I read uh, Rabbi Tulishkin's Jewish Wisdom, Mer Kahana's book, Never Again, parts of uh, Guide for the Perplexed by Maimonides, General Histories of Judaism, college textbooks on theology. Um, but it never, for some reason, it never really gelled. It seemed like it would really be a, a transrational leap of faith. So what convinced Eric to make that transrational leap? Well, for one thing, rationality. Somewhere along the lines, it, 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 it just, it started to fall in place where I, I was looking at the various, I was looking to explain why is human nature the way it is? Why do we have the illusion of 
meaning and purpose and the illusion of the capacity for, for moral decision. And why does it all seem to matter in an intrinsically meaningless universe? And the more he read, the more it dawned on him, why is there something rather than nothing? And why is that something so beautifully complex? Now, in the world of scientists versus religious people, of atheists versus believers, there are names for these arguments, like intelligent design and irreducible complexity. And secular scientists heap a lot of scorn on them. But at the very least, Eric was intrigued. It's the kind of idea that has a genesis in most, I think, quasi-intelligent teenagers at some point. And of course, it took me another, you know, 15, 20 years to, 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 to make that manifest. It was, but it was one thing that, that nagged me for, for a long time. But the one non-rational non argument was, was prayer. I had experienced the power of prayer as a, as a teenager. Um, in a, and that was, you know, in my weak, my weak, sad moments, you know, and I'm like, oh God, please help me. You know, I'm, I'm so miserable. I, I screwed up. I, I'm, I'm awful, you know, and I, I need help. And I would, and I was like, and I, I would preface it by saying, okay, look, God, I know you're, you know, a, a Freudian father figure projection of my inner self putting it out in the world and I'm anthropomorphizing and I'm doing all sorts of stuff, but I gotta talk to you, you know? I gotta, I gotta, I need, I need help. All that being said, all disclaimers on the record. Right, right. and I would, do, I, would, I would literally go through all the disclaimers I could, you know, say, I know this is totally ridiculous, neurotic, pathetic, this, that, and the other thing, but please, I really screwed up. I'm so sad. I'm so, yeah, I feel so ashamed. I'm, I'm angry. I'm this, that. And I, I didn't, it took a lot to get me to that point. And I usually, I, I did that once and then I was good for, you know, three to five to six months, maybe a year, you know, but uh, it was, but it was, uh, the odd thing was that I found it very powerful for me. Like, it was, despite, and so that was another question. Why should something patently irrational, uh, pathetic, <laughs> um, and not logical, not rational, not reasonable, be so efficacious in making me feel better and be better. So in the end, it wasn't a rational argument that brought Eric toward Judaism, but the experience of communion with a God he didn't want to believe in. It almost sounds like he was dragged into this life, kicking and screaming by something beyond his control. Although, actually, it was Google. Or maybe it was God acting through Google. Does God act through Google? Maybe. Who knows? The piece of text that finally pushed Eric onto the path to becoming a Baal Shuva, a Jew returning to observance, was an internet ad. It was the summer of 2003. He was on his computer. And all of a sudden, Eric saw a little ad scrawl across his screen. It was for a Jewish learning center downtown in Philadelphia, where Eric was still living. He replied to the ad, and soon he accepted an invitation to attend a class downtown. A Torah class, I was really worried. Who else would go to this? Is it just going to be me and a rabbi? That's the last thing. I, want. I just want to sneak in the back and sneak out. But it was, you know, the class was, there were probably 20 to 30 people in the, in the class, most of them between the ages of 20, 30, like 75% of them women. I was like, I'm in the right place. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I started getting invited out to uh, Northeast Philadelphia, which is a very black hat Haredi community for, for Shabbat, and also to Balakinwood, Lower Marion, which is a more modern Orthodox community, both of which happen to be very Balchuvish. Um, a lot of returnees to the faith in these communities, and they're, very, they're both very uh, curative or outreach oriented. And so yeah, I started getting invited back, uh, keeping Shabbat for the duration I was there. Of course, I'd take off the yarmulke once uh, Shabbos was done. I, basically, I, you know, I, it, I mean, it took another year before I, I, actually another two years before I owned a pair of tefillin, and, uh, and it was, uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so I was, yeah, it, it took a while. <laughs> but, uh, but I basically started keeping Shabbat that summer, and I, I haven't, haven't stopped since then. How much of this was, this was the way you wanted to live, and how much of it was this is true? It's hard to break down the percentages, but truth came first. But like I said, it wasn't 100% clear that it was actually true. It had a, it seemed to have a greater probability of being true than not being true. And I also saw that it was, that it was functional, maybe not for me, but it was functional for the Jewish people and, and preserving them as a Jewish people for 3,500 years throughout exile and other things. What I would say is the macro logic made sense, even when much of the micro logic at that point, and even still doesn't to me. In the 15 years or so since that summer, there's been one more big lifestyle change for Eric besides becoming religious. He got married. Through an online dating site, he met a woman who lived in Pittsburgh. He visited her a few times, then he moved to Pittsburgh, then he married her. She grew up Orthodox, and so he now has an Orthodox wife and five Orthodox children, two with her and three from his wife's first marriage. Five years ago, he bought Amazing Books and Records, a used bookstore that now has two branches, including one in Squirrel Hill. As far as lifestyle goes, the transition from irreligious to Orthodox can be just as extreme, or more so, than going from Gentile to Jew. One big difference is that while converting from non-Judaism into Judaism is marked with a formal immersion in a mikvah, Ba'alei Teshuvah don't get that clean single moment of transformation. For them, it's kind of gradual and they don't have those milestones. When I ask Eric about the moments he remembers most about becoming Orthodox, he has to rack his brain a little bit. Of course, it has something to do with a bookstore. I went to uh, Borders in Philadelphia and I bought a Siddur. And it was a art scroll uh, Siddur and I started saying the, the bedtime Shema in, uh, in English. You know, it takes about five or ten minutes to get through all the, it's not just saying the Shema, there's a bunch of prayers. And I really, I really liked those prayers. I found the one where it says, I hereby forgive anyone who angered me, antagonized me, or sinned against me, whether in this life or another life, uh, whether accidentally, willfully, purposefully, I, I liked uh, I liked the legalism of it, but I also liked the. It was interesting. I didn't. I discovered I didn't harbor a lot of anger to anyone, but I I. I wanted to be, you know, completely free of that, and so it was nice saying that. So that was that was the first bit of emotional connection I had. Um, I did. Uh, you know, the first. I remember the. You know, I've, I'm, my first Shabbat was uh, in in community was 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 meaningful and it was it was moving. Uh, in a young couple, I guess, 
you know, she was in her late 20s and he was in his mid-30s and they, they, they had a like, couple-month-old baby and they invited me and my friend to, to come over for, for Shabbos and uh, the man had an absolutely beautiful voice and uh, it was just, and they, they sang and, uh, and that was, singing was, was something that was really important to me. I'm not a, I can't sing at all, but I, I love to sing. <laughs> I just I just can't sing in tune to, to to save my life, but I I really relish that, and so we went to Eshat uh, Torah in Balakinwood, and they had a Karbach style minion, and it, and the the crowd there, you know, most people were in their 30s, and then there were some younger people who came in from the city to, to come out, and just there was there was dancing, and singing and men holding hands, dancing around in a circle. And uh, it was just really, it was very joyful. And, uh, it, and it, was, it was such a contrast to just about anything in, in, in secular life. I mean, you wanna, I guess you can go out to a club. It's, it's loud and it's, it's always heavily sexual and, uh, and lonely. This was, it was just, just about being happy and uh, and that was, that was really nice. There's this stereotype about Baalei Tshuva that they're even more religious than Jews who were born into observance. And some of them really are pretty evangelical about their religion. Like, they think they figured out the secret to life because of this huge thing they've undergone, and so they have to tell everyone. So I don't know how accurate this stereotype is, but I do know this. It doesn't apply to Eric. I'm both inside and outside. Um... And um, you know, I, I'm very much formed by my by my background, by my experiences. Like obvious, witness the store, right? Right. <laughs> I don't actually read literature very much anymore, but I was immersed in it for decades, and I do love it in that respect. And similarly, I don't listen to much rock and roll anymore, but I was immersed in it and love it. I marinated in it in my teenage years, and and so I know it very well. But this is. You know, and it's not, I guess it's not the most kosher of businesses, but uh, I do sell a lot of Jewish materials. Hi, Hannah, what's up? The author A-L-B-U-M, Mitch. Mitch Album, yeah, I have some of this stuff. Do you, like, do you ever worry? I mean, obviously the bloom is off at a certain point. It becomes life. Like, sure. Do you... Um, was there a kind of a reckoning where you thought, oh, like, actually, it's still just life? Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's it's definitely still just life. Um, yeah, like, I, I was I was never really a starry-eyed BT, but I feel it's a, it's a good place to be. The life is meaningful. It does become rote. It does become what life is. But well, it's good. It's, uh, it's overall good. Eric Ackland is the owner of Amazing Books and Records in Pittsburgh, where he lives. This segment was produced and edited by Noah Levinson. I'm a lesbian millennial raised Baptist in the South, and as of two hours ago, I stepped out of the mikveh as a Jew. 
I grew up next door to an Orthodox family in North Carolina and thought it totally unfair that girls my age had to wear skirts while jumping on the trampoline. It was also confusing that they had two ovens and labeled cabinets around their kitchen and sometimes needed me to turn on the lights. This confusion definitely was not what turned me on to Judaism. 20 years later, I did marry a Jewish woman, but even then, I just committed to raising a Jewish family and being along for the ride. Somewhere down the line, I realized I was participating in finding meaning in a truly radical ideology by today's standards of late capitalism. And from this realization, I committed to converting and continuing these radical traditions. Two specifically radical concepts in today's society stand out to me. First, you really can't do Judaism alone. You need other people, and you have to be there for other people. You need a minion to pray, you often need a partner to study, you need a group of people for burial, you need a community for most holiday rituals. There is no sitting at home alone and performing your Judaism. There is no just believing. And in a world that wants us to be increasingly isolated and individualistic, this is a gift to all of us. The second radical thing is that you are given a real voice and agency. If you want to read the Torah or study Talmud and argue about it, your voice counts and you have something to say even if you are a kid. I will never forget my first queer Talmud study where I was surrounded by a diverse group of people willing to dig deep into a text that could in many ways oppress us. But instead, we added our voices, we argued, we tweaked, and we made it relevant. We engaged with scholars of the past and started to write the way of the future. It was extremely liberating to feel agency within religious bounds, and I will not take it for granted. I have a very special Mazel Tov this week. Just a few days ago, little Lilia Maytal Savit Woods, daughter of our super listeners, Gavriel Savit Woods and Livia Savit Woods, was dipped in the mikvah by Papa Savit Woods and emerged the newest Jewess. A big Mazel Tov to the entire Savit Woods family. We wish them all a, a, a life of, of good deeds and Torah and chuppah. And uh, we, we look forward to her becoming an unorthodox listener very, very soon. And on that note, to everyone else who has joined us on the journey, not only us on this podcast, but, you know, anyone who became a Jew by choice, family members who helped uh, and were patient and supportive, friends, anyone really who helped make this arduous, serious journey a little bit easier, a little bit more pleasant. Thanks. All the Naomi's to our roots. Mazel tov to all of you. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts or conversion stories at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line 914-570-4869. We have a newsletter. You can subscribe at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. We have swag. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader, and our editor is Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton, and rabbinic supervision this week by Cantor Saul Zim of the Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center in Queens. We come to you from Argo Studios, the studio presence of owner Paul Ruest, who is celebrating his 60th birthday. Happy birthday, Paul, and shalom, friends.